I hope they take away from the book that loneliness thrives in an ecosystem, that its drivers are structural and political and economic, as well as to do with the choices we make as individuals, and therefore that its solutions need to be comprehensive, that we can solve today's loneliness crisis, but only if we as governments, we as business leaders, and we as individuals make a decision to do so. Hello, this is Books Driving Change with me, Matthew Bishop. Today, I'm talking with Norina Hertz, British economist and author of the book, The Lonely Century, How to Restore Human Connection in a World That's Pulling Apart. It's a terrific book, a great read. I learned a lot, everything from interesting thoughts about the gig economy and the challenges of that, uh, Britain's appointment of a loneliness minister, through to things like sex with robots and even uh, ceramic dildo making classes, which is, I have to confess, a new one to me. Um, but uh, it's a very positive book uh, about a very tough situation that the world is in, a century that, according to Norena, is defined by loneliness and how we respond to that with what she calls a new uh, loneliness economy. Um, Norena, given our audience of people who are you know, trying to build back better, feel some kind of call to public service, um, whether they're in business or in government or in the civil society, what, in a sentence, are they going to learn from reading your book? I hope they take away from the book that loneliness thrives in an ecosystem, that its drivers are structural and political and economic, as well as to do with the choices we make as individuals, and therefore that its solutions need to be comprehensive, that we can solve today's loneliness crisis, but only if we as governments we as business leaders and we as individuals make a decision to do so. Great. Now, why, you know, again, in a nutshell, why do you feel this century more than any other is the lonely century? Well, we see it empirically in the data. So we know that really since the 1980s, we've seen a steady rise in loneliness levels. So even before the pandemic struck, one in five millennials said that they didn't have a single friend at all, which is quite a stark figure. Um, 40% of office workers said that they were lonely uh, at work. One in 10 Americans said that they felt lonely always or often. So even before the pandemic struck, we knew that loneliness was a problem and one that was empirically worse than in the preceding decades, which, which of course begs the question, why? What's, what's different? What's been going on? And you know, there are a number of reasons why this is so, uh, from the um, way we've increasingly designed our cities, more for cars really than for people, to the uh, fact that Ever since 2008, the financial crisis, we've seen a steady defunding of what we might think of as the infrastructure of community, of public libraries, public parks, of youth clubs, of day care centres, of elderly care centres. People need physical spaces to come together, but these have been really uh, depleted in recent years. But also factors 
like what we might think of as an increasingly individualistic mindset that we see has really taken hold over the past few decades. We're living in a world in which people have increasingly come to see themselves as hustlers rather than helpers, as takers rather than givers, as competitors rather than collaborators. And of course, that always was going to beget a more lonely world. So those are just some of the reasons why this today is the loneliest century we've seen. So it's very interesting also that you talk a lot about the digital economy and how that plays into all of those trends that you've just mentioned. And, you know, I think obviously the pandemic has has seen a step change in the digitization of, of our lives. You know, some people would say it's probably accelerated the digital revolution by 10, 20 years. Um, we just capitulated on a whole bunch of things that we used to feel we could do offline and, and, and let online take over. And I wonder for you, like, are you now expecting to see the problems that you've written about be significantly worse now and more challenging as we come out of the pandemic? Or do you think that the pandemic has reminded us of what really matters, the human connection and so forth, and therefore maybe, you know, we shouldn't be so worried coming out of the pandemic? I think we're seeing two contradictory trends emerging at the same time right now. And it's hard to know definitively which will prevail. The first speaks to our innate need for togetherness. The fact that we are hardwired to um, want to be with other people, that we are creatures of togetherness. And, um, And that actually, especially after the past year, we want to be together more than before. And we're seeing this playing out in terms of people rushing back to cinemas and um, theatres where they're open, um, to bars and cafes, um, to music festivals and nightclubs. So we are seeing um, people speaking to that hardwired desire to be with others. And we are seeing this playing out as we might have expected, you know, after a period of social deprivation in the same way that after a period of fasting, we become more hungry. You know, in many ways, we're craving togetherness more. So, um, but at the same time, what we're seeing and is has been this massive acceleration towards what I call a contactless way of living. So this is something which obviously had begun before the pandemic, you know, people buying their groceries online or um, ordering their food on Grubhub or doing yoga with Adrienne. This all existed before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, as you rightly said, this is massively accelerated. And the big question is, are people going to trade off, not necessarily consciously, community and connection for the convenience of not having to leave your sofa and being able to consume or experience things or even um, do your exercise class? Will, Will we trade, will the appeal and the allure of what the tech community calls frictionless living prove to be so great that in the process we 
choose not to rub up against each other, um, losing not only a sense of connectedness with others and not only um, inevitably making ourselves feel lonelier, but also in the process in danger of losing the skills that in many ways underpin inclusive democracy. Because these skills, reciprocity, civility, thinking about others other than ourselves, are actually things that we practice in our day-to-day interactions when we do things with other people. So when when we're in the yoga studio and we're thinking about where to place our mat and being conscious that we don't want to downward dog in someone else's face, that's a moment when we're practicing the skills that underpin inclusive democracy. When we're wheeling our trolley in the grocery store and we pause to help an old lady reach for a jam jar on a high shelf, that's a moment when we're not thinking about ourselves, but we're thinking about others. So, um, you know, my concern is that if we choose contactless over contact, not only do we risk feeling um, lonelier as individuals, but that as a society, we become less good at connecting or at least connecting with people who are not only like us. So what's your gut telling you? Do you feel which of those two trends is going to win? You know, to some degree, the two will, these two very contradictory forces will coexist for some time. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be one or the other. I think it's partly, of course, to do with the choices, the active choices we make. Once we realise that loneliness, once we realise as individuals and as a society that feeling lonely really matters, not only matters um, in terms of our mental health, clear link between loneliness and feeling depressed or anxious, not not only matters um, for our physical health, loneliness is as bad for our physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, but also matters for our democracy. As my book makes clear, loneliness and the rise of right-wing populism are interlinked and affects our economy too, with a clear link between loneliness and lost productivity of, of workforces, but also costing states billions of dollars in healthcare costs, when one realizes what's exactly to, at stake here, then hopefully we choose, we actively choose contact. But I think I think we will need to make that active choice because the allure of contactless is strong, is really strong. I mean, in the same way that you know, the allure of digital has been so strong with you know, young people, especially many migrating their social relationships um, to their phones, even before the pandemic, of course. Obviously, a lot lot of this is going to play out over the next year or two in the return to work and whether we return to work and how we return to work. And there's a lot in the book about the WeWorks of this world, these sort of uh, sort of hot desking phenomena and and so forth, which you you, you identify, in, in a sense, some of the attractions of that model, but also many of the failings of that model. But how, how do you think we're going to handle that? Are we going to want to go back to, to the office? We probably will want to see our colleagues quickly for a little while, but we'll probably also, once we have done, uh, quickly 
appreciate the virtues of sitting at home in our office uh, with all our familiar things around us and our family and so forth. We have, what, do, what do you see as the big challenges as we as we come out of the lockdown and, and, and the pandemic and try and think about how we work together in the future? Well, I think it's really important to recognise that uh, different people have different experiences of working at home. And, you know, for people who've got nice houses and, you know, nice home offices and... Um, and a family who they want to be around. Uh, this can be, um, you know, a very rewarding, nice experience and um, sparing a commute. But for some people, working from home, you know, isn't this idle and they're working from a kind of um, tiny table in their bedroom and um, with roommates who they don't necessarily want to be around. So, um, so I think it's recognising that when we're talking about do people want to go back to work? We should be asking this question much more granularly, I think. Who certain groups, age groups, socioeconomic groups are likely to want to go back to work faster, more? We're seeing already splits along gender lines with men and young men in particular wanting to go back to work more than other groups. So I think that's... Um, something to think about. I think the challenge... These are all the friendless millennials, are they, basically, that are out there? (laughs) I mean, they are are friendless as a generation, shockingly friendless. I mean, you know, really concerningly friendless and lonely. And I think from employers' perspectives, it's about recognising actually loneliness is bad for business. Lonely workers are less motivated, less productive, less efficient, more likely to quit a company than a worker who isn't. People who have a friend, a good friend at the workplace are seven times likely to be seven times more engaged with their job than people who don't. So we know that loneliness at work actually is a huge problem for companies. Yet it's barely on most companies' radar. So I think when they're thinking about the workplace post-COVID, rather than the question being, should everyone be coming back into the office or not? There's a bigger question, I think, to answer, which is how do we make our employees feel less lonely and more connected to each other? And of course, to us as well. And there are lots of things in the book that I talk about on this particular front, from the importance of eating together. There was fascinating research done in Chicago with firefighters whereby the um, researchers found that companies of firefighters who ate together not only felt significantly more bonded to each other, but actually performed twice as well as companies of firefighters who didn't eat together. Giving your employees more voice clearly must be part of the solution if the aim is to make your employees feel more connected to you as the employer, because loneliness is also, of course, about feeling invisible, unheard and unseen. So if you don't want your employees to feel lonely, that's something to address as a company. So as you're redesigning your workplace post-COVID, are you giving your employees enough voice in this process? One of the um, best co-working spaces that I saw, co-working and co-living spaces that I saw in my research, was one where which had much, much, you know, very demonstrably significantly higher levels 
of um, members feeling connected and not connected to each other and not lonely. When I asked them what, what they thought was key to their success, they said something that really stuck with me. They said, you know, whereas the other co-working spaces and co-living spaces, you know, they'll lay on all these activities for their members to do and, um, yeah, the ceramic dildo making classes, etc. He said, thinking that if we build it, they will come. What we do is we really get our members to come up with their own ideas for what activities we should be doing and some ideas to bring us together. If they build it, they will stay is their maxim. And I think that's really applicable for the workplace as well. Um, There there are, um, of course, other proven things when it comes to employees feeling more connected besides eating together, volunteering together is another proven um, path that companies can take encouraging staff to providing paid time off for staff to volunteer together. There's also if reconnecting the workforce and mitigating loneliness is something you want to take seriously as a business leader. There's also a cultural shift I think that's needed because if you think about the past few decades, we've really, within the workplace, hypervalorized qualities like competitiveness and determination at the expense of qualities like caring for each other and helpfulness and compassion, which have, you know, at best been um, overlooked and at worst actually been penalised in in some companies. And yet, if you want your staff to feel connected to each other, that needs to be um, redressed. And again, there's a business case for doing so. Cisco, the global tech company, I was very impressed by a scheme they have in their organisation whereby anyone up or down the organization from the CEO to the receptionist can nominate anyone else who's been particularly kind or helpful for a cash reward of up to $10,000. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that by explicitly valuing kindness and care for each other, Cisco's turnover is half the industry average. And it was voted this year again for the fourth year running the best company in the world to work for by its employees. So recognizing that loneliness is a business problem and that addressing it helps the bottom line, I think is key. And then, you know, recognizing that there's actually a lot you can do as a leader to help your staff feel connected. Now you you've already alluded to the connection between loneliness and the, the rise of right-wing populism. But actually you make the very interesting point that you know, your book is different from many of the books that have addressed the loneliness issue because it's not taken a sort of right-wing position or, you know, which I think is really about how do we re, you know, rebuild families and all that sort of thing as a solution to loneliness or the, or a left-wing position, which is much more about the state. Now, why, why do you, why have you sort of taken this sort of more nuanced view um, and... What does that mean practically for people mm. in politics as, the, as they look at this problem? Is, 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 is it one where there, I mean, there are no off-the-shelf solutions, essentially, that fit traditional politics? Mm. Well, I think, I think it's a case of actually there are things that both the left and the right say on this issue that have truth to them, but, um, but it's not binary. So, um, so, you know, yes, it is 
part of the reason why we've got to the situation we've got to is to do with the choices people make. Um, you know, whether it is the fact that more people live on their own today than at any time before, whether it's the fact that people do less with others than they did in the past, you know, are less likely to go to church, less likely um, to go to parent-teacher association meetings, are less likely to be members of trade unions. So um, it is partly to do with the choices we make as individuals. Um, and, you know, it's part of the reason individuals clearly need to be part of the solution themselves. This isn't just about governments. And yet, at the same time, we need to recognise that there are structural drivers here. Um, you know, whether we're talking about the defunding of the infrastructure of community that I alluded to earlier, the defunding of public libraries, of public parks, etc., um, that we've really seen since 2008 happen at breakneck speed, or whether it's... Um, or whether it's the fact that um, social media companies, for example, have been under-regulated despite the fact that we know um, that they play a very significant part in accelerating and amplifying discord and directly in making people feel lonely and disconnected from each other. So recognising that there are structural drivers which governments will need to come in and address, whether it's by regulating social media companies better, as is actually happening in the UK now, where we have new legislation um, being muted, which will uh, impose a much more stringent duty of care on social media companies than has hitherto being demanded of them um, with regards to safeguarding, um, especially children's um, psychological and also physical states, um, or whether and it's... And I did think that was very helpful, actually. I mean, the book has quite a lot that, that was quite new, I think, in terms of how we actually do practical things to deal with this sort of social media platform problem. But also you had some very, I think, thoughtful policy ideas around the future of work and this emerging gig economy and, and so forth. Um, but you, you mentioned, I think, two particular um, political interventions with a, a sit loneliness angle. One was the, the British experiment with the Minister of Loneliness, and mm. the other was the role model of Jacinda Ardern in, in, in New Zealand. Mm. I mean, maybe talk briefly about what lessons we can learn from, from those things for our audience of people who you know, are wanting to to help build back better and to get engaged in public service? Sure. So the United Kingdom has, for the past couple of years, had a, an actual minister of loneliness. Um, so this is a government minister who, within her portfolio, is responsible for loneliness. Is that the way that other governments should go? I would caution against this um, as being seen as a solution if the British experience is anything to go by, partly because unless you're really giving um, this remit to a minister who has clout and voice and putting significant funds into addressing loneliness, you know, this is never going to be more of a band-aid and to a considerable degree that's what's going on in the United Kingdom. But also um, there is a danger that by putting loneliness in a distinct bucket or silo, we're not, again, addressing 
the many structural drivers, you know, whether we're talking about social media companies or the diminishment of our main streets or the infrastructure of community or a whole host of other things or the um, ensuring that workers um, can freely associate thinking about the links between loneliness and rising rates of unemployment in the face of growing levels of automation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these are all things that cross different political ministries. And so having loneliness, you know, as a essentially junior ministerial post in a little side room to me isn't going to cut it. I think more inspiring perhaps is what Jacinda Ardem is attempting to do in New Zealand, whereby she has announced or she announced last year that New Zealand would no longer only be looking at gross domestic product, the traditional measure by which governments determine um, budgetary um, decisions and policy making. So won't only look at progress and anticipated progress on GDP as a reason to initiate um, policies and programs, but also look at well-being metrics much more broadly, including how lonely her citizens feel, including how trusting her citizens are of each other and how trusting they are um, of government. And I think, you know, this is obviously a conversation that's been being, this isn't a new conversation, uh, the idea that we could and should be looking beyond GDP. Um, And of course, it was um, Bhutan that uh, was the originator of um, having a different measurement system with its gross national happiness um, metrics quite a way back now. But um, but it's really New Zealand in terms of developed countries that has taken this now to the next level. And I think that is definitely something we should be watching and learning from, as, a, as I'm sure it will have implications and actionable implications for other countries too. So we were almost out of time. I've got two more questions. One, I think we probably can't have this conversation about the book without addressing the the robots question and particularly the sort of sex with robots. But generally, <laughs> you know, to what extent is artificial intelligence, robots and so forth going to be tech's way of you know, coming up with a solution to, to the loneliness crisis? Because I found the chapter about this in the book, you, you were more optimistic in a way that, you know, robots are going to become part of our lives and will provide genuine comfort and a sense of companionship that that I really expected um what, what, <laughs> and you actually talk about this whole notion of a loneliness economy which is going to to sort of grow quite fast in response to to the challenges and needs of lonely people yes I mean the market as ever is proving to be effectively deploying its powers of innovation when it comes to tackling the problem of loneliness in one area, you know, we're seeing we've seen this before the pandemic with um, things like co-working and co-living spaces and the rise in appetite for shared experiences from escape rooms to music festivals. But and we're you know likely to continue to see um, the loneliness economy evolve in that way. But also we were already seeing pre-pandemic and has massively accelerated through the pandemic a rise in technological solutions to loneliness, of which social robots and artificially intelligent devices are really at the forefront. Um, now, yes, it's it may be surprising to some to think that 
um, to hear that I actually kind of get that robots can help us feel less lonely. I get it from my personal experience. You know, I see how attached I've become to my Alexa device at home and um, you know, this little device that sits in my kitchen and, you know, who I actually feel, I do feel connected to. And if I'm at home, you know, on my own writing all day, it is nice to sometimes just ask her a question to hear her voice. So I can see it from my own personal experience, but looking at the um, literature and looking at um, data and also kind of interviewing uh, many people, uh, you know, I've seen it play out in the real world, most notably with in the space of elderly care where social robots you know, are being deployed to a greater extent than elsewhere so far. In Japan, where this has been um, the case for some years now, you even see elderly women knitting bonnets for their robot carers. Um, and there was one Israeli startup that I went to see, um, which makes a social robot called LEQ, which is specifically designed for elderly care. And um, they actually shipped thousands of these LEQ robots to Florida during the pandemic, at the heights of the pandemic. And the testimonies of the um, pensioners, the elderly people who received these LEQ were very moving of people saying, you know, I would have felt so isolated had I not had my LEQ to keep me company. So I can see that robots can deliver connection. You know, we already have different types of friends in our own lives. So um, the idea that along the spectrum of friendship, there isn't a place for a robot, I think is a mistaken one, especially as robots become ever better at understanding us and ever more emotionally intelligent too, of course. So from an individual perspective, I actually think they are, and they could be part of the solution. It's from a societal perspective that I get more worried because then I, if I, if I start thinking about Hmm, you know, as robots get more sophisticated and ever better at anticipating our needs and desires, it would be very easy for us to forego our human relationships and choose robot relationships instead. And that's where it all gets very worrying because, you know, obviously robots don't demand anything of us. They don't demand that we're kind to them. They don't demand that we're nice to them. They don't demand that um, we do anything for them. So these skills, again, that we need to practice for inclusive democracy, reciprocity, civility, um, in a world in which robots, if, it, if they were to replace humans in our friendships, we would have um, ever more limited opportunity to practice those all-important skills. That, that's what worries me. The last question, the audience for this podcast is people who feel some kind of calling to, um, particularly during this pandemic, to, to building back better. And I think we probably all agree that restoring human connection um, is a key part of that building back better. I mean, what advice, is there one piece of advice you would give to, to people wanting to lead that effort um, as to how they can really effectively address this loneliness challenge? Um, you know, one one is one is tricky. Um, um, you know, because uh, my book's full of many many ideas that leaders um, can can do in practice. But I think ultimately, it's about as leaders 
taking responsibility for the kind of world in which we want to live, recognizing that your actions, your decisions, whether you're leading a workforce or whether you're leading in public service, can really meaningfully impact how connected or otherwise we are and therefore have ramifications um, that go far beyond how it is we feel, um, but also political and economic ramifications too. So I guess my message is there's lots and lots that can be done. Once you acknowledge that there's a problem here, um, there's so much you can do. The future is ultimately in each of our hands. So it really doesn't have to be the lonely century. It's just shaping up that way at the moment. Yeah, we built a lonely world, but it doesn't have to remain so. Well, Norina Hurst, this has been a great conversation about a book which I think is very important. It's very readable. Um, I enjoyed it enormously, but I also learned a lot. And I think there's a lot of great practical ideas for anyone involved in public service or leadership in any aspect of society um, to take away and actually implement. And, and let's hope you're right that we can take this as a wake-up call, not build a lonely world, but actually help restore human connection as we build back better. Thank you very much for talking with Books Driving Change. Thank you very much for having me on. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.